Okay. This is Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus and it's increment 284. We're going to be going to Hebrews chapter 9 once again, verses 1 and following. But before that, we'll have some introductory doctrinal teaching to begin with. We'll pray first. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. And we entrust our spirit to you, the God of all grace, to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is full of grace and truth, to the Holy Spirit, who is called both the spirit of grace and the spirit of truth, the hegemonic spirit. Lead me by the spirit as I communicate your word today and empower each one that hears this message to receive your love and your grace in order to walk in love and grow in grace. In Jesus' name we ask this, amen. First consideration, the completion of worshipers. The completion of worshipers found in Hebrews 10.1 is brought about by the thorough purification of the conscience. The conscience is on the highest level of consciousness. Another way of viewing it, and I almost prefer to do it this way, is to see the conscience as the most central part of human consciousness. As such, the contents of the conscience has a profound influence or have a profound influence on the worshiper. God is a spirit. He seeks people to worship him in spirit and in truth, in the Holy Spirit and in the reality that is Jesus, not in the flesh or in merely outward performance of ritual. God is spirit, and he seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Hebrews has a whole lot to say about the conscience, about its purification or its purgation, and about how the conscience is involved in worship and in true service of the living God. To worship God in spirit and in truth, therefore, is to worship him with a thoroughly purified conscience. It is also on the highest level of consciousness, or we could say the most central part, the innermost part of the consciousness, that the love of God is realized. The love of God is realized also on the highest level of human consciousness, or we could say, if you want to look at a different spatial way of looking at it, at the most innermost part of the consciousness. So that's where the conscience is located. That's where the conscience is purged or cleansed or purified. And that's where God's love is realized, where it's received, where it's responded to, where it's perfected. I say center of the consciousness because love is poured out in the heart, cardia, and cardia, Romans 5.5, 5, the innermost part of the interior human consciousness. You can imagine what is most central to your interiority affecting all the rest of you, all the rest of us, or the highest level of consciousness, how that filters down and affects the rest of our consciousness. The heart 
in fact, is where the conscience is. That's why in Hebrews 10.22, the heart is said to be, quote, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Now, conscience isn't evil, but to have an evil conscience is to have an evilly affected conscience by guilt, by unresolved guilt. So in Hebrews 10.22, again, the heart is said to be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and must be if we are to approach the Holy of Holies as effective priests in our service to God. Nobody serves God properly with a guilty conscience, with unresolved guilt affecting the conscience. Now, when love is perfected or completed in us, 1 John 2, 5, it exerts complete control of us. Now, we hear this in 1 John 2, 5. I related to this dozens of times in my career as a preacher. It says, the one who keeps the word of God, in that one, the love of God is perfected. It finally dawned on me that when love is perfected, it simply means that love exerts complete control of us. When love is perfected in us, it means that love exerts complete control of us. It also means that love has many directions to it. It loves, it, the love goes toward God. It goes from God to us and is received by us. It goes from us to God. It goes from us to people, to all people, to all mankind, 1 Thessalonians 3.12. It goes even to our enemies in Matthew 5.44. Love is perfected or completed in those who keep God's word. Now, keeping God's word here means making a priority of it in 1 John 2.5. It is, for example... It is completed in those who judge to be true the message that when one died for all, all died, and thus all were justified. That's the logos. That's the message. We call it the message of reconciliation. We call it the word of the cross. We call it the word of grace. We call it the word of God. Love is perfected or completed, and that means it exerts complete control in those who keep God's word. And that means, to keep God's word means to judge to be true the message that when one died for all, all died, and thus all were justified. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.14, which we're interweaving with Corinthians. Soon echo, the love of Christ controls me, he said. Soon echo, soon echo. It looks like this in English transliteration, suneco or sineco. It means it grips us, it grabs us, it holds us. The love of Christ impels us. It's the primary driving force, suneco. And it's, Paul says, for we have judged, crino, K-R-I-N-O, crino. Those two verbs hang together in 2 Corinthians 5.14. You can't delink them. The love of Christ grips us and holds us because we have judged, crino, that if one died for all, since one died for all, all died. And so that's keeping the word of God. 
The love of Christ controls us precisely because we keep that word. We have judged that to be true, that when one died, Christ, all died. When he died, all died with him, and therefore were benefited salvifically by him. So when love is perfected in us, when it exerts complete control over us, we are as he is in this world. We are as Jesus is in this world. The church is already that. The church exists in this world as Jesus exists. Without Jesus existing, the church doesn't exist. The new covenant community doesn't exist. He's the head, we're the body. The body is not without the head. The head is not without the body. And so as he is, so are we in this world. But when love is perfected in us and when it exerts complete control over us, we are not only as Jesus is in this world, we are as he is in love and as he demonstrated love in his days of the flesh. Love must be perfected in the envoys of Christ, the ambassadors of Christ, the apostolate, as we're calling it, in the diaconate also, D-I-A-C-O-N-A-T. That's the same new covenant community, only in service. So love must be perfected in the envoys of Christ, in the apostolate, in the diaconate, that is the new covenant community. Perfected love is the prime characteristic of the ambassadors of Christ, if they're to be effective ambassadors of Christ with their ministry of reconciliation. God is called the God of love and peace in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, And perfected love in us means that we are equipped to proclaim the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace in Ephesians 6, 15 and 16, our feet shod with the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace is the same as the word of reconciliation. So perfected love is the prime characteristic of the ambassadors of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.20 with their ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5.18 and 20, the word of reconciliation, the gospel of peace with which we are entrusted. When love is perfected or completed, it controls us completely. That's what that means. The love of Christ begins to control us completely when we conclude or judge, when we render a judgment after reflection, we render the judgment that if one died and since one died better for all, then all died. The love of Christ begins to control us completely only when we conclude or come to the judgment that since one died for all, all died. It's more than interesting that perfected love in 1 John 2.5 is spoken of just after John speaks of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, as the propitiation for not our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's the word that we keep by which love is perfected in us. What is the word that we keep? Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the propitiation for our sins, the expiation, the doing away with 
our sins, but not our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. So check it out. 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls us since we have judged that one died for all, then all died. Similarly, the love of Christ is perfected in us, exerting its perfect control in 1 John 2.5 because, to backstep just a little bit, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the propitiation, expiation for the sins of the whole world. Love is exerted in us perfectly only when we love all mankind, not just some. Only when we know all mankind is the objects of God's reconciliation in Christ, God of love and of peace. So I'm going to repeat that because of its importance. It is more than interesting that 1 John 2.5, speaking of love being perfected in us, is spoken of just after John speaks of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, as the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2.2. 2. John speaks of Jesus Christ as the expiation, the effective removal of the sins of the world in Jesus Christ. As the expiation, the effective removal of the sins of the world in Jesus Christ. And then, in 1 John 2, 5, of love being perfected in those who keep this word, this logos, this message. Paul said, okay, when one died for all, that is as a beneficiary to all, then all died, all benefited by his death salvifically. That's what Paul meant. The love of Christ controls us because I've made that judgment. Similarly, those who keep this word, the word of a propitiation for the sins of the whole world, which is similar to the reconciliation of the world in Christ, he that or she, he or she that keeps this word, this logos, in him or her, the love of God is perfected. The love of God exerts its total control. Now, more things to be said about this. This is the practical end and the practical goal that's attained with Hebrews and the teaching of Hebrews. Paul, likewise then, speaks of the perfect control of him by the love of Christ in connection with his realization of the universally saving effect of Christ's death. 2 Corinthians 5.14 is just another indication that Paul really meant it when he said, I chose to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified is Jesus Christ in whom God reconciled the world to himself, not imputing the world's transgressions to them. The love of Christ began to be the driving force of Paul, the exclusively driving force of Paul, when previously it was murderous intent that drove him in Acts 9-1 and following. The love of Christ began to be the driving force of Paul's apostolic ministry when he concluded the universally reconciling death of Christ a death that occurred because Christ offered himself 
for all in love. God commended his love to us, Paul wrote, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died, and that while we were yet his enemies, he reconciled us, Romans 5.8 and 5.10. And in Romans 5.6, Christ, in order to save us from an unspeakable death, died in behalf of the ungodly. Paul knew himself as an enemy of Christ, and he knew that when he was his enemy, Christ died for him. Paul reckoned himself to be among the ungodly in Romans 5, 6, for whom Christ died. Paul reckoned, reckoned himself to be a sinner, a man controlled by sinful impulses for whom Christ died while he was still controlled, while Paul was still controlled by sinful impulses. So when the love of God is poured out in our hearts and when the love of Christ grips and holds us, both words fit with soon echo, love is perfected in us. I'll say that again. When the love of God is poured out in our hearts and when the love of Christ grips and holds us, love is perfected in us. It continues. It abides it remains. We continue in it. We let fraternal love continue, brotherly love. Let it continue in Hebrews 13.1. We abide in God, and abiding in God, we abide in love, because God is love. 1 John 4.16, I'll say that again. We abide in God, remain in him, live in him, move in him, and he and us. And when we abide in God, we're abiding in love because God is love. Love grips and holds us. Not just grips, but holds us. It is a continual restraint against resentment, anger, hatred, unforgiveness, gossip, slander, reviling, or of making a record of wrongs done to it that people have done to us. Perfect love, love when it's completed, and Hebrews is all about completion. That's its theme word. Perfect love, love when it's completed, expels the evil of all fear. Fear, the kind of fear that torments, is an evil. Love, when it's completed, expels the evil of all fear. A purified conscience, let's get back to that for a minute. A purified conscience, on the other hand, evicts the evil of all guilt. When on the highest level of the human consciousness, or we could say in the central interiority of the human consciousness or the human soul, when perfect love is completed, it expels all fear. And when the purified conscience, when the conscience is purified, at that very same level of human consciousness, all guilt is also evicted. The evil of guilt. Guilt is an evil. As completed love in the highest level of the human consciousness or the central part of human consciousness, we'll just call it the highest level for now. As completed love in the highest level of human consciousness is necessary for effective ambassadorship. That's the story told in 2 Corinthians 5.14 to 20. So, a completely purified conscience 
on the highest level of the human consciousness is required for effective priesthood. Hebrews 9.14, that's where we're going. You may even get there today by looking at that section of scripture with another, taking another pass at it exegetically. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, that means like a lamb, offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve, and that word latruo there means to serve as priests, the living God. So here's the principle, a double principle, as complete as completed love in the highest level of human consciousness is necessary for effective ambassadorship, our ministry toward people, so a completely purified conscience on the highest level of the human consciousness is required for effective priesthood toward God, a service toward God, a worship toward God. To serve the living God acceptably as priests requires a conscience that is purified from dead works. The apostolate atlat, or the new covenant community functional in its ambassadorial function on the level of our time, the 21st century, requires perfect love and a thoroughly purified conscience. That's one of the reasons for teaching Hebrews and blending it with 2 Corinthians. These are not simply attained. It's not something we simply attain. I've attained perfect love or I've attained a purified, decisively purged conscience. They're not simply attained and that's it. They don't, it's like, oh, I've attained that. So that's me forever now. I don't need to maintain it. No, it requires maintenance. So these are not simply attained and that's it. Just as authenticity is not an assumed or permanent possession once it's attained. A person can attain personal authenticity through questions leading to insights and questions of reflection leading to judgments and judgments leading to deliberations, deliberations leading to true values and to discernment of what is good from evil and what is apparently good but not good from what is really good. All those things happen when we attain authenticity. We can attain a human and a Christian authenticity and be walking in the truth. But once we attain that, it needs to be maintained. This is, authenticity is not an assumed permanent possession once it's attained. A continual attentiveness to the word is required and with it, a continuous withdrawal from hypocrisy, untruth, unbelief, and a continual putting off of the old man, as Paul puts it elsewhere, and a continual putting on of the new man, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we walk in love in Ephesians 5.2. We walk in love just like we walk by Faith, in 2 Corinthians 5.7, walking is a metaphor for continuity. Now, speaking of Ephesians 5.2, that's one instance of Paul using the analogy of the Levitical cultus. Now, cultus is a Latin word, and it's an important word, and it shouldn't be mixed up with ideas that we have today of what a cult is. Cultus 
Occultus is, and the adjective cultic, when we consider the Levitical rituals that are prescribed in Moses' law, when we consider the rituals for sacrifice, for the, for the sin offering, for the meal offering, for the peace offering, when we consider the requirements and regulations of the priests, when we consider, as we're going to consider briefly, the regulations of the tent, the tabernacle, this is all part of a cultus, a religious form of worship involving animal sacrifices mostly and service of priests. It's simply called a cultus. Before there was the word the cult, a cult, there was the word cultus, and it's a positive word. It is a word that indicates a form of worship. And so Paul actually used, when he used in, in Ephesians 5 too, that's an instance of Paul using the analogy of the Levitical cultus to express the self-sacrifice of Christ in love. Because it says, walk in love as Christ walked, and his life and his sacrifice became a fragrant offering to God. That's an allusion to the Levitical cultus. Paul didn't major on that, though. The Hebrews author did. And so in Ephesians 5.2, that's one instance of Paul using the analogy of the Levitical cultus to express the self-sacrifice of Christ in love. Paul, on occasion, we say occasionally, refers to the analogy of the Levitical cultus, such as in Romans 3.24b to 25, when he wrote significantly, of Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as the mercy seat through his blood, as the mercy seat through the faithfulness that climaxed with his blood, literally. So in Romans 3.25, Paul uses the mercy seat or the function of expiation or propitiation, and that Christ and him crucified was actually God's display of his expiation or the mercy seat because the cross was the climax of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ which climaxed with his blood. And Paul also spoke on another occasion of his own pouring out, his pouring out of himself and his own life as a libation or a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of the Philippian saints' faith. And that was a reference or an allusion to Exodus 25, 29, Numbers 28, 7. So Paul used that cultus, Levitical cultus language to express that his life was being poured out like a drink offering on the altar of the faith of the Philippians for their sake. Or in describing the financial gift that he received from the church at Philippi from Epaphroditus, their servant. He called that a fragrant aroma an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God in Philippians 4.18 with a nod to Exodus 29.18 and also compared with Ephesians 5.2, the fragrant aroma offering. What is occasional in Paul, though, is central in Hebrews. I'll say that again. What is occasional in Paul, reference to the Levitical cultus, is central in Hebrews. The central chapters of Hebrews, really 8.1 all the way through 10.18, but specifically chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews 
are the central part in which the Levitical cultus is appealed to as an analogy to Christ's self-offering. The Hebrews author makes the analogy or the typology of the Levitical cultus central to his expression of Jesus Christ's universally saving death. This is manifestly most clear in Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. In fact, speaking of centers and centrality, the center of this homily is dealing precisely with Christ's self-sacrifice to put away sin along the lines of the analogy of the Levitical cultus. As we've established, Hebrews was evidently written to a readership who were acquainted, perhaps even intimately, probably even intimately, with the Old Testament scriptures and with the Levitical cultic practices of the Aaronic priesthood. Attentively, intelligently, reasonably, responsibly, and most of all, lovingly, the preacher who preached Hebrews communicates to his audience with that which is easily relatable to them. So, with that said, the first half of the message done, let's move to exegesis once again. By my method in Hebrews 9 so far has been to take a fairly large section of this exegeta, emphasizing certain points about it, going over it again, emphasizing certain other points or words in the exegesis until we get more of a complete understanding. My translation, working translation so far, looks like this in Hebrews 9.1. Now, indeed, the first had associated with it regulations for service and a cosmic sanctuary. That's cosmicon sanctuary. Now, the first here. Now, indeed, the first, in brackets, I have covenant, close brackets, because he's speaking of the first covenant in the context. Hebrews 8, 8 through 12 and 13 actually talk about the new covenant. And now, in contrast, the first covenant. So, indeed, the first covenant had associated with it regulations for service and a cosmic tent or sanctuary. There's an interplay in Hebrews between first and second. That's he prote and to deuteron. He prote, the first, to deuteron, the second. There's an interplay in Hebrews between first and second. We find that in Hebrews 9.1 right here. Again in 9.7, 9.28, etc., Sometimes with second, the word second, to Deuteron, hinting at superiority over first. Just as in Jacob and Esau's case, the older served the younger. In Hebrews, there is the first and second covenant. There is the first, which is old and antiquated. The second is the new and the better covenant. There is the first compartment of the tabernacle or tent called the holies. The first is called the holies. And there's then the second compartment called the holy of holies through a second curtain. Now, if you take a wider view of the scriptures of the New Testament, as I did just for a moment here, 
If you take a wider view, beyond Hebrews, there is the first man, Adam, in whom all die. And the second man, Jesus, who is the one who died for all. 1 Corinthians 15, 45-47, 2 Corinthians 5, 14. Let me just say it by means of a figure of speech called understatement. The second man is preferable to the first. The first covenant mentioned in Hebrews 9, 1 is followed by the first room of the man-made tent in 9, 2. But before we go on to verse 2, a couple things about verse 1 in our exegesis. First... The first covenant had certain regulations for priestly service. Considering these regs for service, we would call it, it's necessary to consider these regulations for service in order to establish a correspondence to Christ's priestly act and priestly service and to accentuate his once and for all eternal all-saving self-sacrifice, and to set up the use of the law of similarity and dissimilarity, we've already done that once or twice, between the priests and archpriests of the old order and their service, and a contrast with the archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek and his singular act and continual service and ministry, specifically his singular, unrepeatable act of propitiation slash expiation, Hebrews 2.17 and 9.26 compared with Romans 3.25, 1 John 2.2 and 1 John 4.10, followed by after that singular once and for all unrepeatable act of propitiation, followed by his continual act of intercession and of helping us while we're in this world in between the two alterations of the eschatological significance. Hebrews 2.18, 7.25, 9.24, and 13.6, speaking of his intercessory, ongoing ministry, and his being our boethos, our helper. Second thing about Hebrews 9.1, we noted that the tent was viewed by apologists of Judaism as a cosmic tent, meaning that it had universal significance in their eyes, that is the old tent, had universal significance, as it did, as did the temple. We explored that with Josephus and Philo and others. That it was, in other words, representative of the universe as God's entire creation. So in A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed, that was, to many Jews, the end of their universe. And the significance of that can't be told I've suggested that the writer may have been hinting in a rhetorically backhanded way then at the universal significance of Jesus, the one who tasted death for everyone and whose act in his second appearing, notice that, second appearing, will be to bring salvation, that is, liberation, not only to all men, but to all the waiting creation. Our purpose, let's call it, I have to just do this and take the responsibility for it. My purpose, that is, has been to show Jesus universally saving significance in Hebrews to a 21st century audience. I'm even striving to show that Jesus' archpriestly act is the very action that brings about the universal 
new creation. Therefore, it's called the cosmogenetic act. The cross is the cosmogenetic act, the genesis of the new cosmos, the new heavens and the new earth. So, Hebrews 9, 2, let's continue with a couple more points in our exegesis. A tent was furnished, it says, the first, hey prote, notice the word first, the interplay of first and second. There's also an interplay between body and conscience that we'll close with in this same section. A tent was furnished, the first room or compartment in order of approach of which was called the Holy of Holies. It looks like two tents, but he's talking about two compartments of one tent, two rooms or compartments. So a tent was furnished, the first, that is, compartment of which was called the Holies, in which was both the lampstand and the table of the presentation of the loaves. Behind the second, verse 3, notice that, the second, the second, the first covenant, the second covenant, the first room, the second room, the first curtain, the second curtain, first man, the second man, first appearing, the second appearing of the priest. Lots of firsts and seconds. Verse 3, behind the second Toduron curtain was a section called the Holy of Holies, having the golden altar and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, which held the golden jar of manna, the rod of Aaron that sprouted, and the tablets of the first covenant. And above the ark, the winged living beings called the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the place of expiation, the mercy seat. Reference here also to Romans 3.25, about which things it is not necessary to speak of in detail right now. If he's not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. Verse 6, these things being prepared just so into the first room of the tent, the priests kept entering all the time, diapantos, regularly, implying repeatedly, performing their service. That's their priestly ministry. But into the second Todoron compartment, once a year, only the archpriest goes. That's a reference to the Kohen HaGodol Gadol, in Leviticus 16, 17, the great archpriest. Never without blood, which he offers in behalf of himself and for the sins committed in ignorance by the people. Now... There's obviously a law of dissimilarity as well as similarity between this priest's action and the action of Jesus Christ who did not have to make an offering of sin on behalf of himself. Instead, he became sin for us all. And he didn't offer a sacrifice just for the sins of the ignorance of the people of Israel, but one sacrifice for all sins, for all time, for all people, everywhere, whether it's a sin of cognizance, where you know it's a sin, whether it's a sin of the tongue or a sin of verbal sin or an action of sin or an omission or commission, willful or unwillful, ignorant or not ignorant, all sins of all people for all time. That's what Jesus did. The point here, though, is that only the archpriest Let's think, what does that refer to? My mind immediately goes to one died for all. 
and all died. Only the archpriest, once a year in the old system, in the first covenant, in the regulations of the priests related to the first covenant, once a year, only the archpriest goes in with blood of others. The obvious dissimilarity is that Christ, the archpriest, goes in not once a year, but once and for all, goes in not with the blood of animals, but with his own blood, having obtained or having discovered eternal redemption. And that means for everyone. So the point being made in Hebrews 9.12 is that when he, he discovered eternal redemption, the idea is he went on an exploration of planet Earth. What he discovered while he was there was not a new land, it was not the Americas, was not the West Indies, but what he discovered there was eternal redemption. He won it through his death. The priests were always going in, in the old order, in the first order, into the first room of the tent connected to the first covenant. <clears throat> Only once a year, only the archpriest, one and only one man, entered through the second curtain, the curtain of the Holy of Holies, or the curtain to the Holy of Holies. <clears throat> Among other teaching devices, we've been interweaving 2 Corinthians, especially 2 Corinthians 5.14 with Hebrews. Here's another point where the needle enters from 2 Corinthians to Hebrews. In, he, in 2 Corinthians 5.14, since one died for all, all died. Here in Hebrews 9.7, only one, only the archpriest, enters once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, into the second compartment, never without blood. There's always a blood trail through the scriptures. There's always a blood groove running down the length of the word, the sword of the word. We'll see that this only one, this only one is representative here of the one who died for all. Of Jesus, the great archpriest, who having offered one offering for all time, entered once and for all into heaven itself with his own blood, having found during his exploration of planet earth, eternal redemption so look at hebrews 9 9 and we're doing a brief exegesis here this is a parable for the present time in which both gifts and offerings are still being presented which are not able to completely cleanse the conscience see it conscience now we're going to have an interplay as we did between first and second. Now we have an interplay between body and conscience or conscience and body. We have a, a reference to the conscience and then we're going to see a reference to the body, the external man. The conscience, again, will be referred to. And then there will be an interplay with the body, the external man. This is an A, B, B, A construction a b a b a i call it an abba construction some people call it chiasmos or chiastic construction and that's what we have in the next passage here he this is a parable or a parallel for the present time in which both gifts and offerings are still being presented this is why i think this was pre-ad 70 just pre-ad 70 offerings are being presented which are not able to complete meaning completely cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. 
having to do only with foods and drinks and various ritual worships, regulations involving the body. That means the external person, the flesh only, until the offering of the body of Christ once and for all, of course, in Hebrews 10.10. These various rituals, foods and drinks and ritual washings in Romans 14, 17, Paul said this is precisely what the kingdom of God is not about. The kingdom of God is now righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And in 14, 18, he said the man or the woman, the person who knows these things and the preacher who preaches this and makes this distinction is approved by God. And so he was actually approving of the Hebrews author here. Because the Hebrews author is distinguishing between the body and the first offerings and the old Levitical offerings having to do with foods and drinks and various ritual washings, which are regulations involving the body. And again, that's until the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all in Hebrews 10.10. Imposed until the time of the new order. Deorthosis means literally the correction. Until the time of the correction. The correction is something that is in line with apocatastasis and anakephaliosis, which is the complete change of situation that happened at the cross. So Hebrews 9.8 can be compared with Hebrew with Mark 8.25 and John 16.13, how the Spirit teaches. He makes all things clear. He makes everything clear, and he was teaching that while this tabernacle, this old tent was standing, it wasn't yet clear. The way into the holiest of all in heaven was not yet made clear. That was in Hebrews 9, 8, 9. Hebrews 9, 9 can be compared, therefore, with Romans 14, 17, and 18, that these ritual washings and the purification merely of the outward body are not what the kingdom of God is all about. So Romans 14, 18 is a commendation of the Hebrews author. This quite negative assessment of the abrogated or abolished system associated with the antiquated covenant is followed by an eminently positive presentation of the advent of the priest Messiah and of his once and for all entry into the heavenly holy of holies of the tent not made with human hands, not of this creation, but of the new creation. And having made one, unrepeatable, efficacious offering for all of humanity and for all time. This next verse, 9-11, we dealt with it in increment 235 on 9-11 of 2022, is the dead center, geographically speaking, or you could say literally speaking, the dead center of Hebrews, right here, 9-11. Now the Messiah has come. Now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things. Now, the way this reads is fascinating because it said an archpriest of good things that have come and that are coming. Both are indicated by that. He is he, and The Messiah has come. That means he has come into the holiest of holies in heaven after having 
had his days of the flesh on earth after having offered one sacrifice forever for all time, after having been buried and then raised from the dead and ascending and seated and enthroned and coronated. Now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things, one that have already come. What is that? That's the alteration of the situation, the radical alteration of the human and cosmic situation. It happened at the cross. And our coming, good things that are coming, that's the alteration of the human and cosmic condition. It happens in the parousia, the second advent, and all of creation is waiting for that because that's the liberation of its slavery to corruption. So now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things that have come and are coming. The alteration of the situation has come. The alteration of the condition yet to come. Through the greater and more complete tent, not made by human hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once and for all through the sanctuary, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of he goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled on polluted people served to sanctify for the purification of the body, and it did. It did serve to purify the body, and that means they were able to come back to church. They were able to be part of the congregation in Israel. Those, the, what purified them? Well, the blood of he goats and bulls, referring to Yom Kippur and other days of offerings. The ashes of a young cow, that's the red heifer offering, sprinkled on polluted people, served to sanctify for the purification of the body. If that worked, and it did, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, purify our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God? That means as the new priests of the new covenant. And so you see, as we began with first and second interplay, we end with body and conscience, or conscience and body in an interplay. So let me read real quickly, and we'll close in Hebrews 9, 9. This is a parable, he says. We actually skipped verse 8 in our exegesis, and I'll do that another time. But this is a parable for the present time in which both gifts and offerings are still being presented, which are not able to completely cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. There's conscience. Having only to do with foods and drinks and various ritual washings, regulations involving the body. Conscience, body. A, conscience. B, body. Imposed until the time of the new order, or the deorthosis, the correction. Hebrews 9.11, now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things that have come, the alteration of the situation, and good things that are coming, the alteration of the universal condition. Through the greater and more complete tent, not made by human hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all through the sanctuary, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of he goats and, and, the, and bulls and ashes of a young cow sprinkled on polluted people served to sanctify for the purification of the body, and how much more, let's make that body, body, it should be a a b a b rather a b a b construction conscience body body conscience 
That's the construction. It's still a poetic arrangement or a poetic structure. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, purify our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God? In other words, the old way of doing it did not perfect or complete the worshiper. The new way through the blood of Jesus Christ perfects us as worshipers. God who seeks those to worship him in spirit and truth has found us. People of a purified conscience, people gripped and held by the love of Christ in the highest level of human consciousness. So notice the interplay here and of body and conscience. The effect of the Messiah's blood or his substitutionary atoning death, as people like to call it. The blood of the unblemished Lamb of God being not the outermost purification of the human body, but the innermost through the purification of the conscience. And so it is the interplay of conscience and body here puts the emphasis on the second or the conscience. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity today. We thank you that what you're doing in Hebrews is more than just teaching us what the book of Hebrews is and what it says. What you're doing is perfecting worshipers, completing worshipers. What you're doing is bringing us into a control of our soul by the love of Christ and a purgation of our conscience from guilt. You're purging us from guilt. You're evicting fear from us so that we can serve as effective ambassadors and effective apostolate on the level of our time. And you are also purging us from dead works that which Christianity sometimes assumes is Christianity. We're being purged from dead works in order to serve the living God as a new order of priests, priests and ambassadors on the level of our time in the 21st century. So, Father, continue to build your church through Jesus Christ Continue to give your church the assurance that the gates of Hades cannot stand up against our assault. Continue to allow us to take up and put on the full armor from God to withstand the assaults of the invisible foe. And we thank you for this privilege that we've had today. And once again, as we started, we end. We entrust our spirits to you, Father, our God of truth, God of truth. We entrust our souls to you, our faithful creator. We present our bodies to you as is fitting of priests to their God. And we give you our heart, Father, that you may continue to teach us, that you may continue to allow us to distance ourselves from hypocrisy and to distance ourselves from unbelief and not to withdraw from you with a fearful heart of unbelief, but to draw near to you with a conscience purified from dead works. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.